Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We have climate disasters happening all over the planet. We've had our share of them here in North America as well. And one of the things that is feeding this is meat. The consumption of meat around the world is contributing about 10% of the greenhouse gases out there. So you've got, on the one hand, scientists, climate scientists, saying that we all need to eat less meat and revisit how we do agriculture. And then also you've got the Lancet, the British Medical Journal. This was a new report published in the British Medical Journal. Lancet recommends a largely plant-based diet. A group of scientists from around the world who studied nutrition food policy deliberated for three years and said that around the world, meat consumption should drop by 50%. Now, that's for health. That's to reduce the number of heart attacks, to reduce the number of strokes, to reduce the amount of obesity and the concomitant type 2 diabetes and problems that follow along with that. Another separate, completely separate study was published in the journal Nature that essentially said the same thing. In fact, here's the abstract health risks associated with meat consumption review of epidemiological studies. This was in the Journal of Nutrition Research. Consumption of increasing amounts of red meat, and particularly processed meat, is associated with an increased risk of total mortality, cardiovascular disease, colorectal cancer, and type 2 diabetes in both men and women. And that's even when you consider things like age, race, BMI, history, smoking, blood pressure, lipids, and physical activity. None of those things have as much impact, apparently, or enough to swing the, the variables as simply eating meat in terms of your risk of dying young. So you've got all that. And in my opinion, between you know, climate change and do you want to die young, meat has become the new tobacco. Remember how tobacco fought back? Mike Pence wrote an op-ed for one of the newspapers in Indiana back in 2000 saying, oh, tobacco doesn't cause addiction, nicotine doesn't cause addiction, tobacco doesn't cause cancer. Right. So now you've got kind of the equivalent of the tobacco industry. You know, the meat industry has one of these too. This is an amazing story. James Tapper writing for The Guardian. The headline, Red Meat Plays Vital Role in Diets, Claim Expert in Fighting Against Veganism. (laughs) Advocates of red meat will begin a fight back against the growth of veganism this week. 
at the UK's biggest farming conference with claims that eating lamb and beef is vital because, drum roll, some plants and fish are being drained of their nutrition. Yes, factory farming has caused the nutrient level in our vegetables to drop by 50% over the last 50 years. In a speech at the Oxford Farming Conference, Alice Stanton will tell ministers, farmers, and environmentalists that key nutrients in some fruits, vegetables, and grains have dropped by up to 50% over 50 years. The solution? Wouldn't you think the solution would be, how about farming practices that keep the nutrients in the soil so the plants can absorb them? Or how about farming practices where you're growing nutrient-rich species rather than ones that simply don't ripen rapidly on the way to the store or as they're shipped across the country? No, 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 no. Their response is, oh, you're lacking nutrients? You need to eat meat. I don't get it. Meat is pretty nutrient poor. I mean, if you want the nutrients from eating animals, you basically need to eat the entire animal. All those organ meats and brains and guts and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, like they did back in the old days. But just eating a burger, just eating muscle meat is not going to do it. So, it's meet the new tobacco. There is one guy whose opinions I pay very, very careful attention to when it comes to everything from nutrition to food safety to public health issues. That's Dr. Michael Gregory. He runs a website called nutritionfacts.org. I've played fragments of clips from his very short two, three, four-minute YouTube pieces many, many times over the years. I have learned so much from Dr. Gregory, and I'm constantly promoting his work. He's got a new book out in paperback. It's called How to Survive a Pandemic. The Twitter handle is nutrition underscore facts. And as I said, the website is nutritionfacts.org. And sure enough, Dr. Michael Greger is here with us. Dr. Greger, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you for joining us. Tell us about the relationship between animal-borne diseases generally and COVID-19 and this pandemic that we're experiencing right now. You know, over the last few decades, hundreds of human pathogens have emerged at a rate unprecedented in human history. You say, wait a second, emerged from where? Mostly from animals. The AIDS virus is blamed on the butchering of primates and the bushmeat trade in Africa. Mad cow disease was because we turned cows and cannibals. SARS and COVID-19 have been traced back to the exotic wild animal trade. You know, but our last pandemic, swine flu in 2009, arose not from some backwater wet market in Asia, but was largely made in the USA on pig operations in the United States. Now, thankfully, swine flu only killed about a half million people, but the next time, we might not be so lucky. So most of the diseases that we're struggling with, and I know, you know, some of the older diseases, smallpox, tuberculosis, syphilis, gonorrhea, they they all go back to animals as well. I mean, we've had this long-standing relationship with these, is it zoonotic or zoonotic diseases for uh, centuries, for millennia. First of all, why do they spread so efficiently in human populations? And secondly, what human behavior is it that keeps producing these plagues? Oh, well, the spread is thanks to the fact that people are becoming infectious, contagious before they start showing symptoms, which makes it very difficult to tamp down. But in terms of what we're doing, when we overcrowd thousands of animals in these cramped, filthy football field-sized sheds in these factory farms to lie, you know, beak to beak or snout to snout atop their own waist, I mean, it's just a breeding ground for disease. I mean, the sheer number of animals, the overcrowding, the stress crippling their immune systems, the ammonia from the decomposing waste burning their lungs, 
lungs, lack of fresh air, lack of sunlight, put all these factors together. What you really have is kind of a perfect storm environment for the emergence and spread of these so-called super strains of influenza. The bottom line is that it's not worth risking the lives of millions of people for the sake of cheaper chicken. If Americans, by and large, stopped eating animal products and thus reduced the demand for, substantially reduced the demand for factory farms and industrial meat operations and, and bushmeat, for that matter, if we were to do that, A, would that help reduce the probability of future zoonotic animal-caused disease epidemics like the one we're experiencing right now, which came out of bats? Would it reduce that? And number two, would Americans or humans survive eating a diet that does not include animal products at all? In this new age of emerging diseases, we now have billions of feathered and curly-tailed test tubes for viruses to incubate and mutate within, you know, billions more spins at pandemic roulette. So the smaller we can make those numbers, the lower the risk may be. And then can we eat plant-based? In fact, not only could we, it would reduce our risk not only of chronic diseases like heart disease, but reduce the uh, underlying risk factors for the current pandemics, severity and death, obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes. These are the predisposing factors that are increasing people's risk right now, all of which can be controlled or even reversed with a healthy enough plant-based diet and lifestyle. So if people renounce all animal products, including cheese, eggs, milk, as well as flesh foods, you're saying that they get healthier always? Of course, it depends on what you replace it with, right? Some of the worst foods right. on the planet are technically plant-based. Soda is plant-based. Potato chips are plant-based. But so I encourage people to move towards whole food plant-based diets, centering their diets around the healthiest foods out there. Fruits, vegetables, legumes, which are beans, split peas, cheese, lentils, whole grains, nuts and seeds, mushrooms, herbs, and spices. Basically, real food that grows out of the ground from fields, not factories. Those are our healthiest choices. Now, I don't want to suggest that becoming a vegan is going to save you from COVID or coronavirus, and I know you're not suggesting that either. We're, we're, we're having this conversation in the context of how do we stop the next pandemic, the next time this kind of thing goes nuts. Is there any evidence that diet is associated with risk factors for getting severely ill with COVID-19? Look, you don't even have to be obese. Just having a BMI of 28 or more, which is about 175 pounds of the average American height, puts you at nearly six times the odds of suffering a severe COVID-19 course. And in the United States, the average BMI exceeds 29. So even being skinnier than the average American, you can have so much excess body fat still put you at extremely high risk for suffering a severe course. So, you know, putting in place healthier habits right now protecting you in the future against diseases and right now against the infectious disease threat. Tell me about mTOR and how some of these animal products trigger actions in the body that might not be useful or healthy for us long term. Oh, well, yeah. So mTOR is kind of the engine of aging enzyme. In fact, that's the subject of my next book, How Not to Age, which will be out December 22, 2022. There are certain amino acids that are concentrated in animal protein, which accelerate the aging process, can increase our risk of disease associated with old age, such as cancer and heart disease. And we can reduce our intake of specific amino acids by shifting over to plant protein, which has as an additional bonus, not the bad 
baggage associated with protein from animal sources, such as the saturated fat and the cholesterol and the hormones, etc. Since food is a package deal, we can get our nutrients from healthier sources, predominantly from the uh, produce aisle, but plant foods in general, eating at the bottom of the food chain, which is our exposure to industrial pollutants, has a number of side benefits beyond just the chronic diseases that are laying waste to the American public. What's your best advice for Americans to just more broadly stay healthy in these difficult times? We should really take this opportunity to get sufficient sleep, keep active, reduce stress, stay connected out here remotely to friends and family, eating a healthy diet. If you ever want to start a meditation practice or start an exercise program, really clean out the cupboards, let's all take this time to set the healthier habits, which will not only protect us and our families in the future against chronic disease, now against infections, but also prevent future infections as well. Yeah, view it as an opportunity. Dr. Michael Greger, MD, physician, author, internationally recognized speaker on nutrition, food safety, and public health issues. His new book, How to Survive a Pandemic, nutritionfacts.org, nutrition underscore facts. The book is available wherever you find fine books. Dr. Greger, thanks so much for being with us today. Keep up the great work. Thanks, you too. On the line with us is Dr. Jason Hill, professor of bioproducts and biosystems engineering at the University of Minnesota. He's the uh, senior author of a recent study on food production and greenhouse gases that's absolutely fascinating. His Twitter handle, J.D. Hill. Jason Hill, Dr. Jason Hill, welcome to the program. Tell us about greenhouse gases. I think most people think when you say greenhouse gases, they think tailpipe emissions or uh, oil-fired or coal-fired power plants. But there's another dimension to this. When we typically think of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, we think of fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. But there's another major source, and that's our food system, land, use of fertilizers. All those things are major contributors to climate change. Now, what does major mean? How do you quantify that? Major means that even if we were to stop using fossil fuels today, by about 2050, we will have exceeded the Paris Agreement's target of limiting global temperature change to 1.5 degrees Celsius or higher, and by the end of the century, going two degrees. So it's a large contributor to our overall... Entirely because of our food production? Entirely because of our food production. We don't often stop to think about the carbon footprint of the things we eat as a... So we're not talking about about the trucks that deliver the food to market or anything, because if we were to electrify our entire transportation system, all that stuff goes away in terms of carbon emissions. You're talking about the way that we are treating our soil and the way that we are, I'm assuming, growing vegetables and dealing with livestock. How do we break those things out and what do we need to do? Yeah, exactly right. You know, in fact, transportation is only a small part of the emissions from the global food system. It's what happens on the land. It's um, it's converting land for production. It's plowing it, which releases soil carbon. It's using fertilizers that release nitrous oxide. That's 300 times as damaging as carbon dioxide pound per pound for climate change. It's ruminant animals that release large amounts of methane. So all that contributes to this problem. Yeah. Back in the day, Ronald Reagan, as I recall, maybe it was a more recent Republican, but I thought it was Reagan, was talking about cow farts and how, you know, everybody's all upset about cow farts and he made jokes about it and stuff like that. But really, you're talking about cow farts here, right? 
It's more the burps, actually, um, that's responsible. So, yes, animal agriculture has a large carbon footprint, and that's because of emissions of methane from animals themselves, as well as emissions of carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide that come from crop production, which then is animal feed. Right. So we produce, you know, to produce a pound of beef, we have to produce how much, how many pounds of vegetable matter to feed that cow from birth to slaughter? One way to think about it is for every pound of protein that you get from a cow, it takes about 20 pounds of vegetable protein to produce that. Wow. That's 20 times the emissions because, you know, because it's being grown. And not only that, the, the animal proteins increase your risk of heart, heart disease and stroke and, and premature aging and all kinds of things, or at least large scale consumption of them. So what, what do we do? I've read papers suggesting that one of the big problems with ruminant animals, which is principally cows, is that they're designed to eat grass and that when they eat grass, they don't burp and fart so much. But when they eat grains, which causes them to get fatter faster, they do. It changes the metabolism or it changes the microbiome and changes the way that they digest things. Is it that kind of a tweak or is it that we need to cut back on animal agriculture or is that we need to do it a different way? I mean, how do we get our hands around this, Dr. Jason Hill? So, you know, what we did in this paper is we looked at sort of five, what we think of as as reasonable changes in the global food system that could reduce emissions. And we looked at eating more plant-rich diets, not plant-only diets necessarily, but plant-rich diets, or eating the right number of calories, a healthy number of calories, increasing agricultural yields through, say, better practices, reducing the amount of waste that we have in production and, and in consumption of food, and also producing crops and animals more efficiently. And when you do all those things, you can reduce greenhouse gas emissions tremendously. So, so there are things that we can do all across the food system, and collectively those emissions could drop dramatically if we make those changes here in the U.S. and abroad. You know, the thing that boggles my mind, there was somebody on TV talking about, it was a member of Congress from Ohio, and he was talking about how he's opposed to the Green New Deal because we need coal and gas and natural gas and and oil power, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, really? I mean, driving an electric car is a really great thing. Getting power from renewable sources we do here in Portland, you know, comes from the Columbia River. Great thing. Electric cars are so much cooler than regular cars. In every aspect, I see at the level of human quality of life, decarbonizing our atmosphere, we get tens of thousands, perhaps probably millions of people die every year from air pollution associated with these things, cancers and whatnot. You've got, you know, lower risk of heart disease and whatnot from eating a diet that's, you know, heavy on plants rather than heavy on meat. I get it that there are industries that have vested interests in keeping things the way they are. But is there any downside to your prescriptions? Is, is it going to cause, you know, outside of those people who are in those particular industries who may have to find basically a new job or another way to make a living or simply make their living in a slightly different way doing the same thing that they're doing right now, producing food? Is there any big downside to this? No, I, I actually like to look more at the upsides because if we do these things, there are all sorts of other societal benefits for us. No, eating plant-rich diets is good for our health. And so think of all the things that we try to do to improve our health. Well, that's one thing that we know has good effects. What about the environmental impacts of 
decarbonizing and wasting less and using land more efficiently and such. Cleaner water, cleaner air, those sorts of things. There are all these co-benefits of making these changes. And so while we may make them, for whatever reason we make them, if we move in these directions, we're likely to have a much better outcome. We're talking with Dr. Jason Hill, professor of bioproducts and biosystems engineering at the University of Minnesota and the author or one of the authors of this recent study on food production and greenhouse gases. Is there anybody? Is there are there organizations out there who's pushing for this kind of change? Does it have a has there been a political hook to it yet? The U.S. officially withdrew from the Paris Agreement. And so that is moving more toward the goals of that Paris Agreement. Uh, whoever is working toward that is working toward a good outcome because that outcome is one in which the effects of climate change can be reduced and those effects that affect us all can be shared by the whole world. Yeah, and I think the two leading causes of death in the United States are heart disease and cancer, both of which would be reduced by people going to a heavier, more of a plant-based diet. President-elect Biden has said that he's going to re-sign the Paris Agreement, which is a good thing. Dr. Jason Hill, thanks for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thank you. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. On the line with us, very happy to have Roger Hallam. He is a British environmental activist, organic farmer, and most significantly, the co-founder of the Extinction Rebellion. He's also the author of a new book, Common Sense for the 21st Century, Only Nonviolent Rebellion Can Now Stop Climate Breakdown and Social Collapse. Roger, welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, thanks. Here in the United States, we occasionally hear a story about Extinction Rebellion, but the vast majority of them are limited to progressive websites. Tell us about the organization, how it came about, and what you all do. It came about because a whole bunch of people decided that reality has hit and the human race is heading towards extinction in as much as we understand the science. If we're heading for extinction, and this is policy of world governments, then it seems to be justified to rebel against them. So, hence Extinction Rebellion. Started off about 18 months ago with 15 people in a room in Bristol in the UK, and now it's in about 70 countries around the world. Over 200,000 people are mobilized in the UK, and it's involved in mass civil disobedience. I don't have a, uh, a website here on my notes for Extinction Rebellion. 
is it extinctionrebellion.org? Yeah, if you put that into Google, you'll get to various websites, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, so it would depend on what country you're in or that, that sort of thing, because they're... That's they're, right, yeah, there's different organizations. Oh, yeah, org here for the American version, I see. Okay, <coughs> cool. So what sorts of rebellion should we be engaging in, or do you engage in? In my book, Common Sense for the 21st Century, I'm basically giving my own views. So I'm not speaking on behalf of Extinction Rebellion in this interview or anything. Mm -hmm. Basically, I was planning to come to the United States to promote an argument. And that argument is that the political system is fundamentally incapable of responding to the climate emergency, given the time frame and given the urgency and the extremity of what is objectively required in order to stop putting carbon into the atmosphere. And the mechanism through which to change political regimes is through mass civil disobedience. And that seems, again, on the basis of the science or the social science in that case, as the most effective way to bring about rapid political change in the shortest time possible when a government's engaged in genocidal activity. This is kind of an abstract conversation. Can you give me a specific example of these kinds of actions that you or others have engaged in that have produced a positive result? Or at least started a conversation? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, it's important to understand understand the extremity of what we're facing. I mean, a lot of journalists ask me about the tactics and, you know, what we do and what we don't do. And it's very easy to forget that we're actually facing something that human beings have never faced in their history, which is a complete breakdown of the geophysical system, the climate, the climate system. And that's inevitably going to lead to mass starvation, and mass starvation is going to lead to all the things that we read about in the history books, war, slaughter, rape, and social breakdown. And that's not some conspiracy theory. It's not some, you know, radical political thing. I'm a business person. I've been running organic business for 30 years. It's people across the political spectrum have been reading the science, and we've been looking at the science, as you well know, for 30 years now, and every, all the predictions are coming true. And, and so people are in this new emotional situation of realizing that 2 plus 2 does actually equal 4, and, and this hell is coming down the road. Now, only once you've sort of emotionally engaged with that in terms of the grief and the depression and the despair, can you start to understand what is required. And obviously, what is required is mass disruption to the system that's taking ourselves and most certainly our children to their deaths. And what that involves is mass civil disobedience, which classically speaking means people going to the large cities or the capital cities and staying there until a government fundamentally changes its policies. And that's the primary objective of Extinction Rebellion. Common Sense for the 21st Century. Your book is available pretty much everywhere, I'm assuming. George Monbiot wrote, Brilliant, wise, profound and persuasive. Well done, Roger. And yeah, I don't think, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think I'm saying anything that is intellectually problematic. I agree. <laughs> you know, it's not difficult to understand the rationale. What's difficult is to engage emotionally with that reality. This is the whole point behind civil disobedience. That, as we know, well know, human beings don't respond well to threats in the future. You know, they'll sit there until it happens. And then, of course, mm -hmm. in this case, it'll be too late. So the fundamental argument here is that you have to create that shock to the system before you get the geophysical shock. And that shock, the best way of doing that is to close down an economy or close down a city so that everyone 
starts to wake up to what's happening. Now, initially, of course, they're all going to hate you <laughs> because who wants to have, you know, their trip to work slow down? But as happens, if the cause is just, as you might say, if it's like a no-brainer of what you're saying, then people do come round to the view that this is actually happening because they're actually getting disrupted. And then you get large-scale attitude change. And in the UK, there was 3,000 people arrested last year, which was the biggest civil disobedience event in British history, even bigger than the suffragettes. And that created a massive change in public perceptions of exactly how serious this is. Like, 55% of the population in Britain now is very seriously concerned about climate change. Now, that's doubled, you know, or tripled over the last year or two. And that's primarily because it's been made real, because people can see thousands of ordinary people getting dragged off the streets by the police, you know, because they've decided they've had enough. Yeah, we saw this here in the United States in the 1960s with the civil rights movement. And we saw it here in the United States, not in my lifetime, but in the 19 aughts and the 19 teens with the suffrage movement. In both cases, they led to radical and substantial changes. In the case of the suffrage movement in 1920, women got the vote in the United States. And in the case of the civil rights, particularly in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, Rosa Parks, the the Montgomery bus boycott. uh, I mean, it's just a whole whole bunch of that was probably the most famous, you know, led to the the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Acts in 1965 and 66, as I recall, or maybe 64 and 65, but whatever. This works. Yeah, it works. I mean, again, it's a bit of a no-brainer. There's overwhelming history historical evidence to it. I mean, obviously not straight away and not obviously in every case, right? You're dealing with human societies and what have you. But compared with the alternatives, which is engaging in violence or engaging in, you know, conventional political activity, sending emails and all that sort of stuff that's been going on for 30 years, this is by far the most effective way of doing it. But I think it's really important to understand that this isn't like previous social movements in the sense that what we're dealing with now is like a cliff edge. You know, yes. even though like racism and women's rights and all these things were terrible social issues in time, there were fundamentally linear problems. You know, they weren't getting worse right. by and the And we're year. dealing now it's with literally the extinction of the human race. Roger, I'm sorry, yeah, we're, we're right. out of time. But Roger Hallam, his book is Common Sense for the 21st Century. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And he's the co-founder of the Extinction Rebellion. You can look it up on your favorite search engine. Roger, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks very much. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Leah Garces, the president of Mercy for Animals. Mercyforanimals.org is the website. Twitter handle is Mercy for Animals or Leah, L-E-A-H underscore Garces, G-A-R-C-E-S. Welcome to the program and thank you for joining us today. I see this article, millions of U.S. farm animals to be culled by suffocation, drowning, and shooting. And I think most people think that this is really a story about how the coronavirus is disrupting our supply chains and people getting it in meatpacking plants are slowing down the rate at which they can move animals through this factory farm system. But I see this, and I'm guessing you do, as more of an indictment of the way that we are producing our food supply than it is. Your thoughts on this, Leah? Factory farming and these industrial slaughterhouses are being exposed. It's like the emperor has no clothes and they're being exposed as a vulnerable system that treats both workers as expendable and farmed animals as something to be thrown away. So what's happening across the country right now is workers are standing shoulder to shoulder while the rest of us are six feet apart. So it's no surprise these are becoming hotspots for COVID-19. 
And the pandemic is also severely affecting animals. So as the slaughter plants shut down due to worker shortages, there's this backlog of millions of animals who are supposed to be slaughtered. The result is millions of them instead are being slaughtered in farm in these horrific ways and then thrown away like they're trash. Wow. This is front and center right now. But if you talk to people who live in the communities where these giant factory farms are located, you find that pigs are no longer pooping like normal. Instead, it's just continuous diarrhea and you get these giant pools, these lagoons of of waste, the same thing with cows, that is actually toxic and is contaminating groundwater and is making the air stink miles away, destroying property values, communities trying to push back against it. We're not going to flush eating meat out of our culture any day soon, although, you know, we can all work to minimize it as much as possible. But is a return to small farms, I mean, basically banning factory farms, is that one solution. How do we how do we deal with this? Yeah, it's a hard problem to solve, but a lot of people are trying to solve it now, and there's a lot of motivation to solve it now that it, it is exposed as this really horrific system. And as you said, as you're pointing out, it's highlighted right now, but the problems of pollution, worker abuse, animal abuse, it's really benefiting so few people. And that has been going on for decades. So it feels like the whole issue has really come to a head right now. And we have some opportunities for the first time in my career to really reform this system. And there's a couple ways to do that. One is through some of these COVID-19 relief packages that are coming out. And what we're really advocating for is money shouldn't go into just propping up a bad system, propping up a system that's, as you said, polluting communities, that's hurting workers, that's hurting animals. Instead, those relief packages that are coming out really need to think about reforming a broken food system. My wife, you know, we grew up in the 1950s as children. Her mother grew up on a farm in central Michigan. It was a grandmother's farm, and she used to go to the farm as a little kid. And it was a 100-acre farm, and they were pretty much self-sufficient. They had a couple of cows, chickens, and stuff like that. But they literally ate what they grew, and they treated their animals well, you know, as well as a food animal can be treated, I suppose, and slaughtered them in ways that they could live with, that were as painless as possible for the animals. (laughs) My wife and her brother used to name the animals, which made her grandmother crazy. But back then, I don't believe there were factory farms. I mean, you said this is just a moment ago, you said this has been going on for decades. Isn't this whole factory farm thing, industrial agriculture, using massive amounts of antibiotics and, and, uh, you know, injecting them with hormones and stuff. Isn't this all really recent? This really has come about in the last 40 years or, or did I just not notice them back in the 1950s and 60s? No, you're right. Factory farming as a methodology of creating protein was was really created after World War II, and there were food shortages. So there was a bunch of subsidies created and incentives for consolidating in this way. But it sort of blew up, particularly the pig industry and the chicken industry consolidated into this monopoly in our food system. And so you have a lot of the farmers, for example, in the chicken industry are living in complete debt. They're basically indentured servants, and they can't get out from under the thumb of big meat. And you can't have those small farms as easily. You can't just walk up to a slaughterhouse and bring your chickens. You can't. 
to be contracted. Right. Would that have been back in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan suspended in 83? He suspended enforcement of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The result of that was these big ag companies were manipulating prices and running small farmers out of business. That was the decade when my wife's grandmother sold her farm. In right. Fact. And you had Willie Nelson doing his farm aid concerts and things. Mm-hmm. And this was the birth of the major industrialization of food from animals, right? Yeah, you're remembering correctly. And it, it was accelerated at that point, but it still goes on. In fact, some of the big uh, chicken companies right now are being investigated for price fixing, where they're keeping the price <laughs> of chicken you know, at, at a high rate just so they can pocket more money. And there's there's a whole federal investigation going on into that right now. I mean, it continues. And this past month, we saw Trump issue an executive order just to force slaughterhouses to stay open. And what that executive order actually did is it shields meat companies from liability, where all these workers are getting sick and dying. They're now going to be protected. And that actually functioned right away. Smithfield had a lawsuit where workers were suing them over the illnesses and deaths that were being caused through through coronavirus, and the lawsuit was thrown out. And this is the, the, the corruptibility between, you know, it's a very serious thing where our protein production system, first of all, is so inefficient and puts so many people, so many animals in our environment at risk, and yet is propped up and supported and subsidized by our taxpayer dollar. And so we're fighting really, right. really hard at this moment because we feel like there's just, just this rare glimpse of hope where funds could instead go to reforming this broken food system. And we think citizens around the country should be writing to their senators and say, that's outrageous. Taxpayers should not be paying for the industry to keep doing what it's doing in the way it's doing it in such a harmful way. Instead, they need to really hit reset on this system. It's time. It's time. You mentioned a lot of this is happening out of view. It's happening out of view because it's illegal to take pictures of a lot of these places. Are those laws changing? Some of them are getting worse. They're called ag-gag laws. It makes it illegal for us. It makes it a, you know, a jailable offense to take photos of abuse inside a factory farm. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, this is such a corrupt industry. It's, it's just mind-boggling. Leah Garces, president of Mercy for Animals, mercyforanimals.org, and Mercy for Animals, F-O-R, Animals is the Twitter handle. Thank you, Leah. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So there's this fascinating story over at The Nation right now, thenation.com, of course, that website by Sonia Shah. It's titled, It's Time to Tell a New Story About Coronavirus. Our Lives Depend on It. The subtitle, The Way We Talk About Contagion Matters. It shapes how societies respond and whether many of us will survive. I should add, you are a science journalist. You're the author of the book Pandemic, Tracking Contagion from Cholera to Ebola and Beyond. Your fifth book just out in June, The Next Great Migration, Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move. And, of course, this piece here, uh, your website, Sonia Shah, S-O-N-I-A-S-H-A-H.com. Story has always fascinated me. I wrote a book, The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, basically about our relationship to nature is like one of our most destructive stories. What is the story we're telling ourselves about coronavirus right now, and what are we getting wrong? Well, I think since pretty much the advent of germ theory, we've basically thought of contagious diseases as the work of invasive germs that kind of encroach upon passive and unsuspecting populations. If that's our story, that's sort of our paradigm and our narrative about how we understand infectious diseases, and that shapes our response, which is then to either try to repel those microbes from moving. If it's in people, we say close the borders, keep them out. We can scapegoat certain populations of being the ones who are carrying it, and we try to exclude them. And then the other part of it is we try to come up with killing chemicals to kind of surgically target and destroy these invasive kind of foreign-seeming external germs. So it's kind of this paradigm of what I call microbial xenophobia. It's this idea that all these diseases caused by pathogens is like the whole issue is the pathogen itself that needs to be isolated and surgically targeted, usually with biomedical commodities. What we're missing in all of that is... Well, there's certain inconvenient facts, of course, right? Like sometimes you have a pathogen around you and you don't actually get sick. Sometimes a person will get exposed to the pathogen and they will get very sick and a person next to them will get exposed to the same level and won't get sick at all. So obviously the, the whole issue is a lot more complex than whether the pathogen is present or not. It has to do with our immunity, our exposure, how we're interacting with each other, all, all these broader things. And that's what gets obscured. So when we just focus on the pathogen and the invasiveness of it, what we miss is all the social and political environmental drivers, which ultimately might be more important in, in all controlling the diseases once they emerge and also preventing them from erupting in the first place. So you've got these two pieces, controlling them before they emerge and dealing with the eruptions. You point out in your article that so many of our diseases are actually uh, zoonotic diseases. They, they're diseases that we got from animals. And, you know, certainly COVID-19 is one of those. Came out of bats via perhaps another species. MERS via camels, probably also originated with bats, SARS, civet cats, I think it was. So I get that, you know, like, okay, we, if we stop destroying natural habitats where there may be reservoirs of infections that have not previously infected the human race, we uh, diminish the chance that we're going to come up against something like COVID-19, to which we have no natural immunity. But that kind of throws us back into germ theory, but in an environmental context anyway. Am I, am I getting this, or is there a piece here I'm missing? 
Yeah, I think that's right. But I think if you look at sort of the broader picture, we see that since 1940, we've had hundreds of these pathogens either newly emerge or reemergence in new places where they've never been seen before. So this one is just the latest in a long line of pathogens that have been kind of traveling along this pathway. And about 60% of them come from the bodies of animals, like you said. 70% are from bodies of wild animals. And on a broad scale, what's happening is that people are invading wildlife habitat, and that destroys a lot of wildlife, of course. It's why we have this huge biodiversity crisis where we're losing 150 species every day. But the creatures that remain have to cram into smaller and smaller fragments of habitat that we leave behind for them, which means they're in more intimate contact with us. And like any living thing on the planet, you know, when microbes find a new habitat to exploit, they do that. And they, you know, they use that new area. And so that's what's happening is we are driving animals closer towards us. And that allows the microbes that live harmlessly inside of their bodies to start exploring ours. And in the beginning, that first confrontation is very violent. We don't have any immunity to these things. So that's why so many of us are getting sick from these novel pathogens. But the bigger picture is this is about our interactions with each other and with nature and the landscape. So how do we begin changing our stories in our culture? I mean, they're endemic, they're embedded, they're in the Bible. I mean, there are assumptions of governance. There are those, you know, Dan Quinn and others who suggest that this all goes back to agriculture. When we thought we could rise up and control nature, that that's why God condemned Cain and blessed Abel, because Cain was the farmer, you know, and oh, you know, you're cursed. Is it that simple? I think we've had different paradigms about how to understand contagious diseases. If you go back far enough, and we, Hippocrates said it was all about miasmas and these smelly airs and gases and clouds that, you know, if you breathe them in, that that's what would make you sick. And that was our understanding of contagious diseases for thousands of years. When we were living through malaria and tuberculosis and cholera pandemics, that's how we thought that those things were making us sick. And we had a major shift with germ theory, which was in the 19th century. And I think we are coming to the point, and and germ theory really was about, let's reduce this complicated infectious disease process that involves like all these different factors into just a host, a germ, and an incursion, and that's it. And then we can just kind of surgically focus on this like microscopic hyper-reductionist. And you know, that works fine. Like that worked well for diseases we had already basically controlled, right? We had already basically controlled malaria, TB, cholera, a lot of the diseases that were hugely burdensome on Western societies had mostly been controlled by then thanks to social reforms, you know, because we had better housing, we had better infrastructure, we had better sanitation, hygiene, all of that. And that was done through a lot of hard work of activists, you know, trying to change society, and they did. And so germ theory works insofar as when we don't have a huge amount of disease around, we can use drugs, antibiotics, vaccines. All of those things really help control diseases that we already kind of knew about and had reduced transmission opportunities for them already. But now what we see with new diseases, you know, when we have an Ebola outbreak, when we have a Zika out of nowhere, when we have new Lyme, you know, new tick-borne diseases like Lyme and others, we can't produce antibiotics and medicines and vaccines fast enough to protect us from that first wave of disease when they first come into human populations, which, as we're seeing right now, is the most sort of destructive one. What's step one? I, well, I think we need to start telling a new story. I think we need to 
start understanding how our health is not just about the absence of a certain pathogen, but it's connected to the health of other populations, of our wildlife, of our ecosystems more generally. Brilliant. Brilliant. Sonia Shaw, her piece is the latest cover story in Nation Magazine. It's time to tell a new story about coronavirus. Check out our books, Pandemic and The Next Great Migration. Sonia, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you. Zach Corrigan is on the line with us. Zach is the senior attorney with Food and Water Watch. Food and A-N-D, waterwatch.org is the website, of course. And you can tweet him at CorriganZach or Food and Water. Zach, welcome back to the program, or welcome to the program. Uh, Thanks, Tom. Thanks for joining us. I wanted to talk about diseases that jump from animals to humans, given that the coronavirus that is ravaging the world right now killed over 13,000 Americans so far because of Donald Trump's failure to do anything in the first two or three months. Apparently started with bats and maybe pangolins, these little anteater kind of animals in China. And, you know, we've seen other of these diseases And also, help me with my pronunciation. This is one of those words that I don't think I've ever heard. I've always just read. I always pronounced it in my head, zoonotic. But somebody called yesterday and said it's zoonotic. Tell me about these diseases. I'm not sure if I can help the pronunciation debate. I think it might be tomato, tomato. But I can tell you a little bit about zoonotic diseases. That's how I pronounce it. I think that most Americans before this COVID-19 outbreak would have never heard of zoonotic diseases or would not be concerned about them. But in reality, quite simply, they're just diseases that pass between humans and animals. And it's pretty shocking, I think, for most folks to find out that, according to the CDC, six out of 10 known infectious diseases can be spread from animals and 75% of new or emerging infectious diseases in people come from animals. Tens of thousands of Americans get sick every year from zoonotic diseases. So they're a really serious problem. Obviously, the current pandemic sheds a a whole new light on this, but people should be concerned about zoonotic conditions and zoonotic diseases all of the time, not just during times like this. Now, do those numbers you just quoted include things like E. coli and listeria infections that are specific to the GI tract, or are those all more systemic diseases like tuberculosis and I believe gonorrhea also started out in animals? Both, and we're concerned about those sorts of diseases that you get foodborne. You know, I think people oftentimes make light of problems like foodborne illnesses, saying they have a stomach bug. But it it can be quite serious. It can put people out of work for days at a time and can result in hospitalization and death. And that's from things like salmonella or E. coli. But it also includes more serious, like influenza. And a lot of people are now finding out about the 1918 influenza outbreak. But few people actually know that during that outbreak, there was an outbreak with swine as well. Um, Well, that outbreak began in Kansas with a pig farm, didn't it? I mean, didn't it come from pigs and go into humans in Kansas? That's right. And, And vice versa. As late as of 2009, there was an outbreak. People may remember the H1N1 virus. 
and that was Poitra where it originated, but it came from a mixture of swine, avian, and human lineages of the influenza virus that ended up killing 125 people in 69 countries. We've known for, I assume, centuries that some diseases come from animals and humans catch them and, and then they become transmissible person to person. Clearly, the so-called wet markets where wild animals are sold for food, and this is not unique to China or Southeast Asia. I've seen these markets in Africa as well as Asia. I've seen something close to them in South America. They seem to be more uh, markets of poverty, basically. People are, are resorting to eating, well, I mean, there's parts of America where they hunt possum and squirrel and some people will uh, even eat roadkill. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, if it's a matter of survival, people will eat whatever's available to them. How does this inform us with regard to these things, first of all, with regard to wild animals, and then secondly, with regard to domesticated animals that we're using for food? Yeah, well, certainly. And I, I think that there is going to be a movement. We've already seen a movement in China limit these wet markets and limit the contact between people and animals. There needs to be a transition for folks to realize that this is not something that's just happening elsewhere. This is not just a China problem. This is a problem that happens with our domestic animals, too. And while we are concerned, and obviously so, about the current pandemic, we are currently, Food and Water Watch is working to fight against this administration's current rollbacks of protections that would prevent the spread of disease from animals to swine. For example? Under the new rules finalized just this year, it is now the employees of slaughter plants who are chiefly responsible for identifying diseases in animals prior to instead of federal inspectors. And this means mm. that under or untrained employees will be the gatekeepers ensuring that there aren't diseased animals entering the food supplies or just sent to a different farm or sent to a different slaughterhouse where the disease can be spread. And that's very troubling. About a decade ago, or maybe longer, there was a lot of concern about folded proteins, these, uh, you know, these proteins that cause mad cow disease, uh, jumping from cattle to humans and that that may play a role in the explosion of dementia and what's what's diagnosed as Alzheimer's in America. What's the status of all that? Research is still being done on how these prions work and how they affect human health. I think this is more research needs to be done. But if there's anything that we have learned from this pandemic, it's that we should be working with extreme precaution. We should be trying to minimize humans' exposure to animals that are potentially diseased, and we shouldn't be limiting or relaxing such rules. And we shouldn't be laying off government inspectors and replacing them with corporations managing their own. This is just incredible stuff. This and, is the wrong and, time um, to allow pork companies to self-police their hog supply for diseases, that's for sure. Some of these resurgences. Zach Corrigan with Food and Water Watch, foodandwaterwatch.org is the website. Zach is the senior attorney there. Zach, thanks so much for dropping by today. Great talking with you. Thanks so much, Tom. It was all fake. Meat shortage, that is. Seriously. The headline over at rawstory.com. It was a fake meat shortage. When the meat industry 
first of all, you had COVID discovered in a bunch of packing plants. Okay. Smithfield was at the top of that list. Smithfield is the largest pork producer in the United States. They are owned by the Chinese. Let that sink in for a minute. And during the month of April, in the United States, we shipped 129,000 tons of pork to China. So we get the infections. The Chinese company that owns Smithfield gets the profit. The profit doesn't even go to the United States. We get the infections. We get to pay for the hospitalizations. We have our people die. And China gets 129,000 tons of pork in just one month, just the month of April, when this was just like exploding. The meat processing industry immediately started issuing press releases saying there's going to be a meat shortage, which freaked people out. Wendy's was like, oh my God, you know, we're going to have to dial back on burgers. And some stores started rationing meat because people were buying meat like they were buying toilet paper. There was never a meat shortage. Literally, there was never a meat shortage. And in the midst of the so-called meat shortage, we were shipping hundreds of thousands of tons of pork and beef and chicken producers in the United States. Just got permission from the Trump administration to ship the slaughtered chicken to China where they will be processed by low-wage workers and then they will ship you know, the breasts and thighs and legs and stuff back here to the United States for you and me to eat. Uh, well, not for me to eat, but <laughs> for those of you who eat birds to eat. This is just mind-boggling. The Orlando Sun Sentinel has done some really good reporting on this. Michael Corkery and David Yaffe Bellani reporting Smithfield Foods was the first company to warn in April that the coronavirus pandemic was pushing the United States. And this is a quote from Smithfield Foods, the Chinese-owned pork producer here in the United States that produces pork here in the United States for export to China, the largest pork producer in, the, in America. Smithfield Foods said, quote, the United States is perilously close to the edge in terms of our meat supply. That was back in April. That same month, just Smithfield sent 9,170 tons of pork to Americans? No, to Chinese. Now, frankly, I think the whole factory farming industry should be dismantled and people who want to eat meat should have their own chickens and cows and dogs and whatever, whatever meat they want to eat. But, no, not dogs. These are all sentient beings. So, you know, it's just the workers. Who gives a rat's ass about the workers, right? In Trump world. In Republican world. So you've got some dead workers. Eh, eh, they were mostly black and Hispanic anyway. The Trump administration was lobbied by the meat processing industry. Help us force our workers to go back to work. A, they got Trump to say, okay, you must reopen. Cool, that's what we wanted. And the workers, you must go back to work. And if you don't go back to work, you can't get unemployment benefits. And now, Anthony Scalia's son, Eugene Scalia, who is a lawyer who spent his whole life lobbying, working against unions, is in charge of the Department of Labor, the organization that oversees unions and labor in general. And Scalia is working with governors in red states to prevent people from getting unemployment benefits 
if they're afraid to go back to work because, you know, maybe they're over 40, which means, you know, you have a much higher chance of dying. Or maybe they're overweight or they've got diabetes or heart condition or asthma. The body has a molecule. It's called TMAO, trimethylamine N-oxide. And TMAO is a marker that things are going on inside your body that can lead to heart disease, if not being the thing itself. I don't understand all the details of exactly how TMAO works in this regard, but there was a fascinating article published, a study published in the August 11th issue of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. They were looking at TMAO levels as well as blood cholesterol, blood pressure, and weight. And they were trying to figure out what dietary factor will have a big influence on these things. Because, you know, higher TMAO levels, greater risk of a heart attack. And then, of course, blood cholesterol, blood pressure, and weight. We all know all the things that those are associated with. And so this was a 16-week study. They had people eat two meals a day, either red meat or vegetarian meat, you know, uh, Beyond Meat or Impossible Burgers, basically, you know, these plant-based meat products. And each group did it. Half the group for eight weeks would eat vegetarian burgers and the other half would eat the meat burgers and then vice versa for the second eight weeks. And they compared them. Two servings of meat or plant-based alternatives every single day for 16 weeks. And what they found, people with elevated TMAO have a 60% higher risk for adverse cardiovascular events such as heart attacks. This from the study, researchers observed that participants who ate the red meat diet during the first eight-week phase had an increase in TMAO, while those who ate the plant-based diet did not. They go on to say, health benefits conveyed from plant-based alternatives extended to weight and levels of LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol. Participants' level of LDL cholesterol, these are the people who were eating the the vegan meat, the vegetarian meat. Participants' levels of LDL cholesterol dropped on average 10 milligrams per deciliter. That's, you know, the score that they give you. And now your cholesterol is, you know, 122. Well, they dropped by 10 points, basically. Which is not only statistically significant, but clinically significant, too. A measurable reduction in heart disease from cholesterol. In addition, participants lost two pounds on average during the plant-based portion of the diet. And they're still eating everything they want, as much as they want, they just basically went vegan. It's amazing. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 